Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild Ones podcast, a show where we chat about bike stuff. I'm Jimmy, and this week I'm joined by producer Emily and the wonderful, the beautiful, the magnificent ultra-distance cyclist, Chris Hall. And we haven't told anyone about this, so this is, this is actually going to be a surprise to people. It's a surprise to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been following this channel for a while, you might have heard of him before. But for those that are new here, Chris is probably best known for documenting his bike adventures on Instagram and YouTube under the name Chris Hall Rides. As well as being a lovely guy, Chris is also a wealth of cycling knowledge and experience. He's bike-packed across multiple countries. He came top 10 in the British National 24-Hour Time Trial Championships. He's gained a reputation for doing extreme charity cycling challenges, like riding 107 kilometers every day for 107 days. I'm tired just trying to say these words. <laughs> His efforts have so far raised almost half a million pounds for organizations including Men's Health Charity Movember, Half a million pounds, that is absolutely wild. Chris is also a fantastic mental health advocate who uses his own experiences with depression to create a safe space for people to be more open about their feelings and seek help. There is absolutely no question that Chris is an incredibly strong rider, but his openness to sharing his vulnerabilities is probably his most unique and endearing quality. We're gonna chat more about Chris's journey a bit later, but for now, welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you. That was probably one of the most excitingly over-the-top <laughs> intros I think I've ever heard you give to anyone. It was a bit like This Is Your Life, you know, Michael Parkinson. Yeah, yeah. we got a little red book. I need to get a red book, don't I? Yeah, just write on it. Chris's book. Yeah, and always remember that Emily is a great writer. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm becoming a better reader. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I look at this, we have this, for people that can't see it, we have this great list of text in front of the, us, and I'm very dyslexic, so I just look at this and I just glaze over it basically i scroll up and down on it so i look like i know what i'm talking about well fortunately for you in this scenario you are a guest yeah, so, it's great. so actually you don't even need to look at the document and i just need to make sure that we talk about the right things okay you're the boss and with that in mind we usually kick off with some news <laughs> so first could hookless rims soon be banned from pro racing well there's people who would definitely like them to be so the discussion kicked off after a crash involving Thomas de Ghent at the UAE Tour last week. 
It appeared that his front tire may have blown off the rim, causing him to go down. Now, the Professional Riders Association, CPA, is calling for hookless rims to be banned from the peloton, saying that they can take down other riders and cause mass crashes. So, what actually is hookless? Well, historically, wheels have been manufactured with a small hook shape inside the rim designed to interlock with the bead of the tyre and secure it in place. Hookless wheels do not have this, meaning you can't run them at high pressures. We've talked about the dangers of hookless rims on this channel before, and those concerns have been echoed by CPA president and former pro Adam Hansen, who told website Velo, tyres should not come off a rim. The maximum PSI these hookless tyres can take is 73, and if you hit something, it goes above 73 PSI on impact. That's why tyres are coming off. He even claims that riders have had their tyres pop off after merely leaving bikes out in the sun. But he says manufacturers like hookless rims because they're lighter and it's easier to produce them, so that's why they're pushing for this. Hmm, interesting. I remember, I think we talked about this in an earlier episode of the podcast as well, where Francis was talking about the discrepancy between the recommended uh, PSIs that were posted on the tyres versus this the, is the wheels. wheels mm. yeah. and I also remember I found out as part of that conversation that I had hookless rims. Oh, yeah. And that I had been exceeding the PSI that is allowed in them. Hookless is great for off-road. That would be my stance on it. I don't think it's necessary for road. So off-road, you're always going to be running lower tyre pressures, whether that's gravel or mountain biking. Therefore, you're you're not going to hit that 73 PSI limit, I guess. But for road, I think there's still a lot of people that maybe aren't fully understanding that you do not need to ride as high a tyre pressures anyway if you're running a tubeless setup. But ultimately, it has come down to manufacturing cost, right? Like, it's con- it's significantly cheaper to build a hookless rim. You're not having to basically reinforce the sidewall to then create that hook into it, which adds weight, adds costs. That's why manufacturers are doing it, ultimately. Insignificant weight in the grand scheme, grand yeah, scheme of things, mind. road cyclists are weight weenies, right? <laughs> so, of course, they're going to care about that. And if, if a brand can turn around and go, this wheel is 20 grams lighter, blah, 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 blah. That's the marketing spill for that brand, and that's a sell point, and they're going to do it. It's worrying that someone would market it as being 20 grams lighter. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, it, you wouldn't. It's not unheard of, right? It's not unheard of. I, I guess if I guess the, the the one of the issue, well, not issues, but one of the challenges here is tubeless versus tubed, mm-hmm. because if you're running tubeless, I don't know anyone that would run any tubeless setup anywhere near 73 psi, road or not. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's a non-issue. Well, it's less of an issue. Whereas, as soon as you put a tube in, then perhaps you are going around those kind of pressures. I'd also say that I think in the pro peloton and pro cycling, there may be some of the teams probably aren't as switched on or as aware as like the advances in technology with tire brands. And what I mean by that is the ability, if you're using a tubeless setup, that you can run a lower pressure, better rolling resistance. It's no slower. Um, I think a lot of the maybe not so bigger teams, you don't have the sport science behind the team. So maybe a team like Lotto Destiny, which Thomas DeGent races for, maybe they haven't quite fully invested in understanding what the tire limits are in terms of PSI and still have a bit of an old school mentality, which what I mean by that is when you have, I'm talking like, 40 odd years ago where it was like oh you know the tires the right pressure because you'd flick it and it would echo and make this (laughs) echo that you could hear for about 20 minutes 
but like I think some of the teams maybe haven't quite got that education in place right for this kind of newer system. Now, tubeless setups have been around for a long time, right? Like in mountain biking and off-road, it's been around for a very long time. And admittedly, it's quite new into road cycling. But when I started really road cycling in 2016, that was, for me, that was the way that I automatically went was tubeless because I saw, I thought it was quite good. So it has been around for coming up for 10 years in road cycling. I just think that maybe some, the education there at the very top level maybe isn't quite finalized right now. And that is also a team that doesn't have huge amount of uh, like kit sponsors. Um, they're using Shimano group sets. They're using zip wheels, Vittoria tires. Like it's a weird mix of component trees to be run together. So maybe there's something in terms of that hasn't just been shared properly with the mechanics. But ultimately, in my opinion, with hookless rims, keep it for off-road really did you have you seen the picture yeah so i think what's also interesting about it is they are running foam inserts mm -hmm. which i imagine a lot of people don't even really know that they're a product because it's definitely something i'm seeing coming through at the minute so i've been to uh two trade shows two uk trade shows in the last week last week was core bike which is a large proportion of the industry and then last weekend I was at Ice Bike, which is Madison, the biggest distributor in the country show. Um, and at both shows, I'm seeing foam inserts showing up. And I know Nick, Bike Mechanic Nick, is using foam inserts, inserts in off-road stuff, mm -hmm. um, which kind of makes sense. You've got a bit of rim protection. But interestingly, I can't remember what brand it is. And I had a... Um, I don't think debate is the right word. I had... Uh, I enjoyed... Uh, the amusement of it. At Corebike, there's a foam insert designed for road tyres yeah. that is being aero-optimised. <laughs> aero of course it has. <laughs> Come on. And they're talking about how the air inside the tyre circulates when the wheel's spinning and it's optimised to make it more aero. And I was like, I, like they, I <laughs> don't even have this conversation with me. Like... Even if it's technically true, and it is technically faster, there is not a chance that it's anything more than 0.000000001 of a watt. First thing I'm going to say is marketing. The second <laughs> thing I'm going to say is if they're saying it's an aero, it helps aero optimize it in whatever way, yeah? Now, bear in mind, rolling resistance is going to trump aero in that particular stance on a tire. Rolling resistance is more important, so you want a lower rolling resistance. It's not going to be about the aero aspect, the aero side of it is going to be how the tire interacts with the rim. So that this aero insert has got to work for hundreds of different wheels if mm -hmm. it's going to actually be beneficial. What I'd love to see is the white paper saying how many wheel sets they've tested it with, how many tires they've tested it with. What I would say to that is don't waste your time trying to read it because there's no it's not there's there's not a scenario where it makes sense i've already said i'm <laughs> dyslexic i'm not going to read it i just want to see it i want to see it you see, see if they the put proof. the effort in yeah, yeah i want to know this but, proof but of the it. thing is that even if they have the proof it's just still going to be so insignificant that it's just it's just not it's just not worth it i do i do have an interest in foam inserts though because hmm. the the ones that were at uh ice bike so one of the brands i guess it's the vittorio ones it might even be the ones that thomas the was using it was they vittorio were they ones. were the, that color yeah and I think the road ones are actually designed not to protect... Well, it's the mountain bike ones are always about rim protection because they run at mad low pressures. Great. The road ones, they were saying that they're actually for um, like limping home. 
Yes, exactly. So you, you get a puncture and you can still get home on it and then you deal with it when you get there, which to be honest for tubeless is the sort of thing I have an interest in because I don't want to have to take my tire off and put a tube in because it's messy, it's disgusting. I just want to get home and deal with it in the warmth kind of thing. Are you putting sealant in there as well? Yeah. Yes, you have sealant in there as well. Right. I think the other aspect of it, as you say, the limping home thing, and it's, if you do have a blowout on a tubeless setup, it's quite often quite, it can be quite an explosive blowout. Yeah. And it's, uh, I guess there's an element of security to it and safety. But then on the contrary, what we're seeing with Thomas again in this accident, like luckily, I think he was the only rider that came down. Um, but it could have been quite bad. And he still finished the stage, still finished the race. Like he was fine. But it could have been incredibly serious riding in a peloton. And the, one of the things about that UAE tour that's quite well documented, is it's on a lot of straight wide roads. So as a pro rider, it's actually incredibly, it's quite boring as a race to do until like, You've got the the last climbs in it, like the Jabal Hafid climb or I think the they, sprint finishes. There's a couple of stages where they refer to them as hockey stick stages. Oh, because they go? Because it's super, super flat and yeah. then kicks up at the end. Which is like the last stage of the whole tour. Yeah. But the lapse in concentration happens a lot in that race. So there are actually quite a lot of crashes, even though they're on really straight roads. So, you know, I, maybe the setup that they, that team has done is just they haven't quite refined it it could even be that thomas again as a rider has gone i want to run 90 psi because that's what i've always done he's a bit older you know i think he's 34 35 something like that so he's a bit older in the peloton and he might just be like this is what i've done i've always done it i'm riding 90 psi so we are yet to find out what is going to happen with hookless rims and it is i feel like it's going to be sort of thing that we find there's going to be new stories coming out about this over the next couple of years and we're going to find out if the industry is going to adapt to it or reject it and that's kind of where we're at it's kind of like the sort of press fit bearing uh press fit bottom bracket t47 threaded bottom bracket space where it's kind of tr all trying to work out uh, is everyone going to move to it or is no one going to move to it what's going to happen mm. i feel like that's kind of where we're at with hookless at the minute uh and you know it was the same when disc brakes came through are they safe? Aren't they safe? And now they're just the standard. So you remember when they were saying that it could like chop your head off <laughs> yeah. with the rotors in like what five, six years ago. Now for some weird cycling news. A pro cycling team has been caught by the UCI dressing their mechanic up as a rider so that they could sign on at a race. That is what a, what a headline for that. The incident involved American women's continental team Siniska Cycling. They turned up at a one-day race in Belgium with four riders, only to, to be told that they couldn't participate unless five riders were there. So the team's sports director told the, me the mechanic to put on some team kit and a face mask and sign on as the team's fifth rider. The UCI found out and they were put in front of a disciplinary committee. The sports director has been fined and suspended from cycling until the end of 2025. The mechanic was fined and suspended until September. And the team, who said it was a one-time mistake, has been suspended from their next race. My first thoughts are, I'm, I bet, like, that's savage on the mechanic. So the mechanic's been yeah. suspended until September yeah. and was just like, do this. You know, like, they've probably just been told to do it. And like, you go, well, you know, well, I, I, I know it's not right, but I want to keep my job. She yeah. should have just ridden. She should have just gone off on the start line. <laughs> well, the mechanic, although i guess she doesn't have a do you have i'm guessing you need a uci license or? mechanics are often the hardest working member of a, a team right they're up early in the morning getting the bikes ready they're up late at night preparing all the bikes and cleaning them as well and then being told at 
that I mate your boy, mate your girl. I'm not sure. Get get in some kit, start racing, or sign on. Now, the, my frustration if- with this story is that very often in men's world tour races, you will see teams that don't have enough riders, so they will start the race. Say say the riders <clears throat> seven riders for the that particular stage race. You'll see them start with six riders, and they're allowed to start. They might they maybe get a fine. Maybe. I don't understand why it's an issue because they are at a disadvantage by having less riders. Exactly. And it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, pr- presumably this team has, co- has gone all the way to Belgium to do this race. So they, they you know, like it's a lot of money. So they, mm-hmm. they probably wanted to get the racing time and the experience and make sure that the riders that were there actually got some value out of it and the team didn't just lose money for having a rider down. Either they didn't know the news or they did and something happened which meant one of the riders couldn't ride or whatever. But what does it matter? Like, let them race. Yeah, I mean, if a rider's got an illness, you're not going to force that rider to start, right? I, I remember um, someone telling me a story about a cyclocross race where a junior practically lapped the entire field and wasn't allowed to stand on the podium because there wasn't anyone... The... the, the there wasn't anyone else in that person's age category, even though that person had beaten older people in other categories and they weren't allowed to even stand on the podium for a picture because it's against the rules. What? Is that in the UK? Yeah. It's Ben Tulit. I bet it was. He used to be like junior cyclocross world champion. It was a a girl. Oh, really? It was, was I think, a 16-year-old lass. Amazing. That wasn't allowed to stand on the podium. And you just think like, well, let's just putting people off like how great would she have felt as like yeah. you know like i'm doing amazing and you you have this picture to look back at do you know what they should have done built a human podium they should have all just got on their knees yeah and let her stand on top so 100%. she could get a picture taken yes but people yeah, that live in these spaces of elitist cycling and british cycling rules they go well it's the rules mm. a lot of people just go like well that's the rules i will guarantee Referring back to this story, what probably has happened is this American women's continental team has come over to Europe to race a series of Belgium Kermesses. Yeah. So Kermesses is... 100%, yeah. You know, townside crits is probably the best way of wording it. Um, so they probably brought a small team of riders across. They probably got a, like a lovely Airbnb where they're all staying together. And a, or a horrible know, one. Or a horrible one. I'm hoping they've got a lovely Airbnb. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and, you know, one rider's obviously got, got a bit of a flu or something's happened and then just straight up being told you can't start. Like as a team, if you've got a very tight schedule of maybe one race or two races a weekend, a Kermes races can be in the week as well. You miss one and that's so much experience for riders, especially coming from America to come and ride in Europe because especially Belgian Kermes races are seen as like the races to kind of like understand what you're doing and understand mm-hmm. how to handle the bike, position yourself and all that kind of stuff. It's very, I think it's actually quite insulting to the team really to not be allowed to start and have, and then being put in this very awkward situation and then being fined and suspended on various points. I, I would imagine they probably think the rule, they probably think that that rule is, is stupid, which mm-hmm. is why they're like, well, what's it matter? Let's just, let's just get ourselves in the race. We'll have a good time probably thinking, well, we're not here to win it or be competitive, so it doesn't matter if we kind of bend the rules a little bit, but it's more valuable for you four riders to get some good Completely proper agree. racing experience and time. That's why we're here. So we'll prioritize that. And then, yeah, then the rules kicked in. 
I believe they did not take part in the race in the end. Really? Yeah, I think I think there was I think someone cottoned on to what they were doing and they were mm-hmm. questioned by whoever was in control at the time and maybe got found out at that point, which is why it ended up going to a disciplinary thing. So they didn't uh, get away this, with this it. This is the kind of thing where I would I hope people kick off about it so that they change the rules. Because I, I, I cannot think of one scenario where it's n- less safe with one less rider. You know, like, it yeah. isn't less safe. It isn't, like, they're, they're at a disadvantage and no one else is disadvantaged as a result of them having less riders. They yeah. don't need even numbers because that's not how racing works. It's just... Well, there'd be more even with four riders. <laughs> a question I have on this as well is, like, you get... Um, Riders, if it's a Kermes race, for example, you get riders that are not riding for a team. Yeah. They're independent riders. Why couldn't they have just been said, said like, we're four independent riders? Obviously, they're in the same kit and stuff, but, like, there's so many... This is... Do you know what I mean? If it's a certain level of UCI racing... You can still get independent riders. Can you, though? Yeah, I think you can. We'd have to find out more details Mm. on what the race is. I'm not sure, because I've talked to James Jobber who's yeah. the the workshop manager at, or the, the manager at Backyard Bike Shop, who races for a Conti team as well. And one of the perks of being in a Conti team or certain Conti teams is that you can get into these races mm. and he wouldn't be able to otherwise. I'd be, it'd be interesting to know what level race it was because if it was a race where independent riders could race, then it's been really harsh. I'm going to bet it's not. You're probably right. Yeah, It's a sad story though. We have an update on Roast My Ride. You might remember ages ago, at the, when we very started this podcast, we asked you to submit photos of your bikes and we were going to rate them. Then we realized after a lot of very strongly worded emails that this was a terrible idea for a, an audio format. <laughs> so we finally got around to filming some dedicated Rate My Ride videos for this channel. They will be released soon, so get yourself over to the YouTube channel bit of it, subscribe, and I've I've actually seen the first one we made, and I was, even though I'm in it, I was I was lolling hard. <laughs> I was lolling. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> now on to our big question, and this one is for you, Chris. So I hope you are ready to go. I pressed the button and I don't know what I pressed. (laughs) It's not the ejector seat, thankfully. Yeah, no, it's the hot seat. So we want to know, what is it really like quitting your job to to become a full-time cyclist? So in 2018, you quit your full-time job as a designer to become an ultra cyclist and content creator. And since then, you've built an engaged online audience of people who love following your adventures. 
I am one of them. I'm biased, of course, because I knew you before you were doing all that stuff as well. Um, so we ultimately want to know how have you, how did you get to the point you're at now? What's 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 the journey being? Just to like you know a summary of how you've gone from being, I've got a job in a essentially corporate environment mm -hmm. to sitting here on a day of the week talking to me about riding bikes. I mean, it has definitely been a weird journey. Like I, so I, I used to cycle a lot as a kid. I used to do a lot of like BMXing and mountain biking. And then I got very obsessed with video games, which I think a lot of kids of my generation did because that was when like PlayStation came. I've started playing computer games again as well. Uh, mate, I'm thinking about getting an, a console again. Which one? I want to get the Nintendo Switch. Ooh, I've got one of those. I just got one. So yes, you, you, you used to play <laughs> those computer games. And, and then I I went to university. I studied architecture. I We've already, we off air have discussed whether I'd rather be called a designer or an architect. And I've always preferred the term designer because it's more inclusive of design. It doesn't just limit you to one thing. Architecture is buildings. Designer covers everything. Because I have done everything in that career of working as a designer. And... I basically bought a, when I was studying, I bought a road bike that was two sizes too big for me. It was red. I hate red. And I was using it as a way to commute from where I was living in Greenwich to where I was going to university. And then I was working in a bar in Shoreditch. And then I was working for Apple at the same time as well. So that, that's effectively how I was paying for university. And and I used to play rugby. I used to play at quite a high level. Uh, I played at like a, I say a high level, it's county level, which is not a, bad level but it's mm -hmm. pretty good and I had quite a bad knee injury which part of the rehabilitation for that injury was cycling uh, effectively I dislocated my knee the wrong way and then after I left university I sort of stopped riding a bit like because I ended up working for a, an architectural firm that was a five minute walk from where I lived so it was like well why am I going to ride for one minute when I can just walk there and it was quite nice so I stopped riding a bit and with the job I was doing in architecture I was traveling quite a lot um and I you know really struggled with my own weight my mental health like just proper burnout in that industry and the last architecture and design firm I worked in I basically sort of went into the office one day and was like this is not a sustainable and healthy lifestyle for me as a human being and that was around the time that I think we actually all kind of met as well. I was still working in architecture and design a bit, but that was kind of the time we all sort of met. Well, not, not a bit. When I met you, that, that was what you did. You recreationally rode a bike and you then went off to the office and did design work. Did days of work and then rode home. Yeah. Hmm. Usually via my house at the other end of London. So yeah, you, I quite so often could, rode so home you. So you could get more miles in. Yeah. Well, for me, it was always about especially back then and still now it's about what I really enjoy is the conversations that you can have while cycling. And I think this relates heavily to mental health is that with cycling, you are riding very often next to someone. So you're at an equal with someone quite often. If you're sitting opposite each other, like we all kind of are here, it can be conceived as quite confrontational and some people can find it quite intimidating. I'm not intimidated by either of you, just putting that out there, but it can be perceived in that way with strangers. And with cycling, because you're riding next to someone, it's a much more neutral grounds for discussion. I think it's a, a lot of the reasons why people open up and talk more. Um, I'm digressing. So, I mean, for me, 
I guess the journey was, it wasn't a straight cut. It was very much a, a phased thing almost. And it wasn't intentional either. It was, it was the path that naturally kind of evolved in front of me. I, I, you know, I was working in architecture. I was cycling while working in architecture. There was quite a few people that I worked with and cycled with as well. And progressively my first, like, I guess, big challenge was riding around uh, Richmond Park for 24 hours and then subsequently the 107 kilometers every day for 107 days. Now that 107 challenge, I was doing that while working still, while still working in the industry, but it's very clear that cycling was a big part of my life at that point. And the company I worked with, the company I worked for were incredibly supportive of it. They'd let me like bring the bike in the office and keep it safe. But for me, ultimately, it, it became really black and white one day. It was like, do I want to be doing a, a desk job, an office job that I fundamentally don't enjoy in an industry which is not what I perceived it was going to be when I was studying it. It was very different. Or at that point, you know, I was in my mid uh, mid to early 20s, I guess, probably mid 20s. I was kind of thinking like, I don't understand how this should be my life. So how did you go from having a very comfortable, solid career in design architecture, whatever you want to call it, yeah. to... Because most people would go like, oh, well, he must be rich. He must have big pots of money that he was just like, well, he can afford to not work. Mm. How did you, what was the step? You know, you put your notice in on a job. Did you have another job lined up? What was? So the basically, I I designed two products. Um, one of them became an art installation that I sold. And one of them, I sold the patent to Philips. They were... I won't go into details of what they were, but I designed these two things and sold them both. And that I did them in collaboration with another designer. So I sort of sold my half of that, that business that we created together uh, to Philips. And that was a way that allowed me to have some financial support initially, uh, which helped me to, you know, be able to live and function as a human being. But for me, it wasn't it was it was quite black and white in terms of architecture. I went into the office one day and I said to my director that I work with, I was like, I am quitting. And he was like, why are you quitting? And I was like, I basically said, if I don't quit, I don't know genuinely if I'm going to be here in a year's time. It was really black and white to him. And he was, a, I think he was quite overwhelmed by what I'd said. And, you know, I was talking in terms of being here as a human being alive and everything like that not just as in being working in this company and he turned around to me and we'd had a bit of a we didn't have a great relationship but he turned around to me and said I'm not letting you quit and I was like and that instantly I got my heckles up a bit and I was like what the, what the hell do you mean you're not letting me quit and he was like I'm gonna make you redundant so you can have a payout for three months so you can then try and understand what you want to do with yourself and then subsequently I had this very when I did that 24 hours in Richmond Park, I got chatting to this guy called George. And at that point when I quit architecture, there was a, a bit of a sort of a transition period where I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then George had kind of been like, let's, you know, I want to create Jam, which I'm sure many people have heard of who are listening to this. And I ended up creating Jam Cycling with him. And eventually Francis was part of that as well. And Jam, for those who don't know, is was a cycling distribution company, wasn't it? Exactly, exactly. And that was a fantastic like stepping stone from, I guess, a more corporate stable job to kind of an entry into the cycling industry and starting to 
be able to ride much more and actually learn a lot more as well like i learned so much during that job through the people i met through it as well and at the same time i was still and am still doing freelance design consultancy you know that's still very much part of what i do i don't necessarily speak about it on social media but it's still part of my job well that segues nicely to how do you make a living I, th- I guess a lot of people will just assume that brands pay you money, you advertise those brands and get to tart around and do whatever you want. I think that's a very narrow-minded way of looking at it, to be honest with you. I'm, inc- I'm, not, I'm never going to deny it. I'm incredibly lucky to get to do what I do, but I also know I work harder now than I've ever worked in my life. I work very long hours and there is, I guess, making a living of it is understanding that I, I don't make tons of money. Uh, make enough that I can live comfortably and I can be happy and I can have a nice home but I'm you know I'm by no means rich in any way but I don't think wealth should be perceived as income it should be perceived as in your life experiences and shared experiences with friends and family whoever you want them to be Mm -hmm. wealth is knowledge and experiences to me it's not financial Um, saying that obviously you still need to pay bills I get that it's good that you get that because that's important. I oh, mean, you don't pay them bills. It's game over. Events. You do lots of very significant things. Mm-hmm. And I imagine some of them are very costly. Yes, definitely. Way more than people believe. How do you... I, well, me and Francis have spoken about this um, because, you know, like he rode across America for two months. and The actual cost of that trip was something like £25,000. You know, it's like outrageous amounts of money. Certain countries are more expensive as well. Of course, yeah. America's an expensive country. When we did, when Francis and I did Australia, I think that probably cost us each. It wasn't, it wasn't that kind of money, but it was probably six, seven grand each still. How are you funding that? So some stuff is self-funded. Some stuff is funded via sponsors. So depending on the sponsor will depend on how budgets are, I guess, controlled of them. Some will have a budget which is uh, effectively an athlete or ambassador budget and some will have a marketing budget and that marketing budget can be used for events or challenges and stuff like that the generally speaking the races the ultra races are pretty much self-funded but things like uh the everests for example or the world champs project last year there's more funding that comes from those from sponsors because they tend to be more sponsor centric it's one of those things where you almost have to be doing something all of the time, don't you? You yeah. it, To be a successful content creator, you have to have interesting stories to tell, right? And a lot of those center around events, whether they're already set out events or they're th- challenges that you come up with yourself. So you almost have to, they are the the, the bread and butter that keep you being able to do this as of, as part of your living. Yeah, it's a it's it a lot of work. Money. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of making sure that you're physically capable, which I think is a thing that people quite often forget about. Like to do like the Seven Everest Challenge from 2022, the amount of physical prep that had to go into that, not just as in I needed to be in a physically in a fit shape, mentally I had to be in a good headspace for it. I needed to be lighter for it because ultimately it helped me climb better and there's a very finite line to being too light and not being having any resilience and being you know 
too heavy and not you know being able to perform as well as you can so there's a lot of things to juggle throughout that kind of thing i want to caveat that weight bit with you were training to ride an everest every day for seven days straight exactly normal people don't need to think about weight in the same way that you did because you were specifically training for an unbelievably hard event and riding up and up a hill for so much time weight is there's a very unhealthy relationship with weighting cycling i think it's very well documented i struggled with it myself and i think my struggles with it come from being a much larger person when i was younger and being quite severely bullied for it um but you know there's a in that particular event and that stance is we knew that an easy win was to lose some weight quite an easy win like it's going to effectively allow me to climb better and this kind of way of thinking comes into every challenge things like the national 24 time trials weight is not a matter really in that power is the biggest metric in that is power and aero efficiency Mm -hmm. so making sure your aero and aerodynamically fitted to your bike while comfortable but ultimately if you're a bit heavier you can generate more power that course is quite flat but also it's better because you're rounder you're more like a torpedo yeah (laughs) that's why i'm a fantastic time trialist so you have a job that half of maybe even the whole cycling community are envious of what are the best bits about it i'm incredibly lucky i know i'm incredibly lucky right and the best bits about it i would say there's there's several things that i really enjoy one of them is the shared moments with other people so doing an ultra even if it's one that i've done two three four times and seeing someone else's reaction to something like the sunrise or the scenery i've already seen it and i already know how beautiful and unbelievable it is but seeing someone else's reaction to it i get a lot out of that um and for me i I love the ability to explore whether that you know it doesn't matter in what kind of context or way that is whether that is just riding for days sleeping in ditches whether that's you know i i guess the term would be credit card bikepacking you know staying in hotels and stuff being able to explore is the bits i really love there's for me it's very much i i think there's something very rewarding about this almost like an analog experience of you know you're traveling under your own steam you're smelling everything you're seeing everything you're touching it you're hearing it i mean i'm not hearing a lot because i'm freaking half deaf anyway but you you know what i mean that's that's a great term that analog experience yeah like you think of the difference of being in a car and driving across the country is you don't interact or engage your senses in the same way as you would it's it's interesting you say that because emily pretty much refuses to drive if like ever and on the there's the odd occasion usually because i've had one and a half glasses of wine where i have to sit in the passenger seat and then i dri- and then we're on roads that i drive all of the time and i'm like oh my god i didn't realize you could see the angels of the north from there or oh there's Penshaw monument i didn't realize mm. you could see it from there yeah it's a completely different uh, experience but in a car, you're still you, you, the difference from driving and being a passenger is quite noticeable, right? Mm-hmm. But then the difference between being in a car and then on a bicycle mm-hmm. is another change of experience. Out of all of the things that you've done as a cyclist, mm-hmm. which one of those things is the most significant? The moment where you're like, "That changed my life," or "This is the reason that." I'm now where I am. What's the, what's the one thing if you had to pick it out where you're like, bam, that's it? 
I think the one thing that probably put me on the, I think actually put several of us on the trajectory that we're now on was that 107 kilometers every day for 107 days. That's when I kind of first started riding with Francis. And that's kind of, that was a challenge that was a regular thing that Francis documented, you know, mm-hmm. continually during that three and a half months. If, if you ask him, he thinks he also did the whole thing. Yeah, he did, I think he did 106 days, didn't he? <laughs> you ask him, definitely. <laughs> and that that was a, a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I mentally really struggled in that challenge. I, and I both you two kind of saw that quite a lot, I think. And I think that, but that was a, a very, I guess an eye-opening moment where I went, okay, I've realized that I can actually you know, I'm not the fastest cyclist in the world. I'm not the, I'm never going to be the fastest and I'm fine with that. But I'm a stubborn sod and I I can, I know how to, I know how to manage that and how to, um, I guess, compartmentalize that and deal with it. And I can go for a long time. You, uh, on the subject of that, something which I guess was a learning piece for me. So I, I've, I've been... Have I been involved in more of your events than anyone else? Yeah, you have. You're you're have. the oracle, Jimmy. <laughs> you are the person that I regularly tell people that I couldn't do most of the things that I've done without you. Yeah. So what you're saying is all credit goes to me. Yeah, yeah everything yeah, goes take to Jimmy. It, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I think the the thing that I find fascinating about you f- from like someone which has helped out on a lot of these events is it's so common in men in life and sport to be like macho and bravado and harden the fuck up and i remember like you know in the early 107 107 kilometers every day thing it was so noticeable early on that if it was a day where it was like horrible miserable you were tired and the typical response would be like rule whatever number it is harden the f up and get on and do it and the weather doesn't matter just get out and be tough Mm. like that weakens you Mm -hmm. whereas actually all you need to do with you is is give you a cuddle give you a little rub on the back and go like oh you smell nice you're gonna you're gonna be all right and you go oh yeah i feel great now and then but you'd never stop anyway it's mad it's like i think in the the everest challenge if, if anyone's seen that film that we made of it i think in that challenge i probably cried in your arms more than i have done my own parents over the course of that week I think perhaps you saw me and and for that whole challenge like if we talk about that very briefly I didn't successfully do seven and a lot of that was caused by the we had a lot of bad luck in that challenge bad weather there was so many things out of our control there was loads of things but I still did like six and a half I think it was in the end so it's still a significant amount of Everest's um but that whole challenge was about, you know, being adaptable. And I, very early on, I think it was the first day, we all kind of sat down as a small group and were like, well, how the weather for this week looks terrible. What do we do? Do we reschedule it? Or do we just try and do what we can with it? And we chose to try and do the best we can. But for me, that was such an emotional roller coaster that challenge. Because it'd be one day I'd feel fuck nearly swore. <laughs> one day I'd feel brilliant. And the next day I would be in a hole. And even, and I think what I've learned about myself over the years is that normally I'll start really well and I will plummet quite quickly. And then I just rock it back up again. Mm-hmm. 
And we saw that in the Everest. Like I think I had two days where I was down quite yeah. significantly. And then I think it was the next day I did like nine and a half thousand, nearly 10,000 meters of climbing. I, I think there's a really good message in that challenge around a DNF is not a bad thing. No. And, you know, you've done, you have achieved loads of stuff and you've DNF'd on a handful of things. Yep. And I think that is a really good message because that's what pe that's what happens to normal people. That's what happens to real people. That is life. What it's interesting because I've I've definitely noticed it over the last maybe two years is very, 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 very accomplished ultra riders DNFing and being quite open about it. Yeah. That is not something that's traditionally been a thing. No, absolutely not. They've, you know, ruined themselves, put themselves in the hole, injuries, illnesses, long-term recovery process. And uh, there's, a, there's an Italian guy called Matteo De Marchi. He's a lovely, lovely guy. Um, probably one of the best ultra cyclists at the moment. Used to be, his, his cousin is a pro rider as well. Now, he DNF, he's never finished Atlas Mountain Race in Morocco. I've never finished Atlas Mountain Race in Morocco. I've done it twice. Me neither, to be fair, but you I haven't been either. Exactly. And he, it was recently, the reason why I bring this one up, because this was finished like two weeks ago, right? And he DNF because uh, he was having knee issues. And he said, very openly said, I'm, I'm going to pull out the race. He was in second place. He's like, I'm pulling out the race. So I'm having a lot of issues with my knee. And it's February. There's a whole year ahead of us still. And I don't want to jeopardize anything else later in the year well yeah finishing a race is not more important than having a knee exactly and i think you know that you, you if you're doing an ultra or anything that's like a multi-day thing or a long distance thing you're more likely to not finish it than you are to finish it and being open and truthful and honest about that is fundamentally the most important thing because it's more relatable and more people could be in that situation I get a lot of people message who are like, oh, I'm, you know, I've signed up to do blah, 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 a race or ultra or whatever it is. And they're like, well, what? And I'm like, okay, cool. What's your goal? Like, what do you want to do? And they're like, oh, you know, I want to come like top 20 or whatever it is. It's like, just, just, if you finish it, that's a success. So I, I think a lot of people struggle with my approach to um, having no interest in actually finishing stuff. Yeah. So I say, so if someone said my goal is to finish it, I would say that, is a bad goal. Your goal should be to have a great time. Yeah. We choose to do these kind of things. It doesn't matter if you finish it or not. But yeah. if you get home afterwards and you're like, I had fun. I rode my bike. I had, I met people. I had a good experience. And I'm now home and able to do, continue to do stuff and enjoy it. That is a result. Whether you have a finishing number, time or not, doesn't matter. Now, ultimately, no one really gives a monkeys outside of the top three in any any event right i'm not just talking ultra cycling i'm talking any event only people really know first place maybe second and third right i couldn't tell you who came second and third in the races at the weekend and i watch every single lemon bike race that goes i don't know who came second and third i remember who won them and so like saying to yourself oh you know i want to come in the top 10 or whatever it's like cool but like is that is that actually a justifiable goal are you gonna end up doing yourself long-term damage which is unsustainable for yourself and could potentially put you in a hole for a very long period of time or are you going to or is or, or is the bigger goal just to as you say enjoy the experience and the moment and push yourself and you know compete with yourself 
So whatever your goal is, if it is just to have a good time, just have a good time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've been very open about mental health and there's a lot of stuff about social media being bad for mental health. Mm -hmm. How has being very heavily involved in social media affected you? That's a good question. Um, I think that social media is not good or sustainable for most people's mental health. And what I mean by that is that social media, intentionally or not, people use it as an opportunity to showcase the best of themselves. And even like it doesn't matter in what context or where that is, it's people do it. They do they just do it. They showcase the best of themselves. It's a way of showboating. It's a way of peacocking was how I was once described it as. You know how like male peacocks show all their plumage. And I think that they're one of the big problems with that is it forces people to compare themselves against other people. And that is that is why I don't think social media is good. Uh, the comparison thing where someone will look at what, say, I'm doing and think, oh, you know, he's he's got it all cushy, whatever it is right now. You know, I was in Spain earlier this week and, you know, that was great. I'm not going to deny it. I had a great time out there, but like, there's a lot of additional things behind the scenes going on, you know. Uh, I think that for me, I definitely struggle with that comparison thing with some people. And the way as I've got older and matured, I think my solution has just been like, cool, just unfollow that person or whatever it is. Because that is not fundamentally good for me as a person to be seeing what whoever they are is up to. And I don't know what's going on behind the scenes with that person. I try and think of it in that context of being like, you know, people are putting out what they perceive as the best form of themselves generally. Social media can be used as a very positive tool to support and engage communities who are having tougher times and, you know, struggling with their own mental health or situation they're in. It just isn't the majority of the time that it's used as that. And I think that part of that is when we see these stories that come up about people being very open and honest and they almost get like highlighted to us because you just don't see it very often right it's very hard to talk about that kind of stuff publicly in a in a domain like that I, th I think for me the um the best and worst bits of social media are the best bit is people like you which use it as a way to demonstrate that you don't have to be how people say you have to be i.e you can show emotion and you can talk about the the bad things as well as the good things. You know, it's it's a place to have a really open community. And then on the flip side, the bit that I hate about it is how it invites people to uh, comment in a way that just isn't appropriate. It's very easy for people to just be rude and vile and horrible in comments or make content themselves that's just designed for clicks and likes. Exactly. Um, I which agree is incredibly, incredibly destructive. My... my block list on all social media channels is extensive yeah because i kind of figure that i have to block the accounts that are doing horrible stuff because they need to be highlighted as accounts that are doing horrible stuff but you know you are a very very great example of the the reason that social media is actually an amazing place is that you can build communities and you can educate people about stuff um and uh, have conversations with people and be broad and highlight good things. I think it's very clear for me when I when I know when I'm struggling a bit because I don't engage with social media. You 
won't see regular posts, you won't see me commenting or responding to stuff. That's when I know that mentally I'm not in a particularly great space and I need to disengage from it. And that that that's important for anyone to understand that you need to pull yourself out of that situation. On that subject, how is your mental health at the moment, if you're happy talking about it? It's been uh, tricky. I've, I think I've had a very hard year. I don't think there's any denying that. If anyone that has followed what's happened over the last 12 months would probably understand that. Like I had, I had pneumonia in February, and that's a very long recovery process. And then I broke both of my wrists, which is also a very long recovery process, a year recovery, basically. Well, for a cyclist, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think like for me, you know, relating to this being, you know, part of my job as well is like last year for me was a year where there was lots of contract changes and that is an incredibly intense and stressful time because you're kind of saying to brands, how do you value me? By contracts, you mean sponsors. Sponsors, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that becomes quite a stressful time because I was at a point where, you know, I'd been with quite a lot of brands for a long period of time. So I was one debating changing sponsors around as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... You know, it's a quite, it's a, it's a, you know, you're seeing what you're valued at and it's quite, it can be quite, uh, as a self-employed person, it's quite scary. You know, you've got someone turning around going like, nah, you're not worth that. When you're like, well, why aren't I worth that? Because that's what you paid me before. So why, why do you perceive that I'm no longer worth that to you? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, my, and I, I think especially last year with the, having to take quite a lot of time out for injuries and illnesses, it meant that it was harder to have quite a lot of these discussions with some brands. And, and you know, it's like, like you're saying, it's, it's very personal, isn't it? You yeah, know, it's, it's incredibly personal. Like you're, you're trying to define your value in a way that allows you to keep living and doing life, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, I understand, as, I, as I've already said a few times, it's a small part of, it's not, a, it's not a, well, it's not a small part. It's a proportion of my income. It's not my whole income. But ultimately, that proportion of my income allows me to fund doing more of these charity projects and challenges, which ultimately are the things that I care about the most. Or going in the the races for me are for enjoyment. I do them for enjoyment. The charity projects and those challenges are the ones that I care about the most. And they're to be honest, they're harder than most ultras. They just are. So yeah, the last the last year's been tough. I've really I have struggled over the last year and I've tried to be open and honest about it when it's felt appropriate um but ultimately i i feel very lucky and privileged that i have a very very supportive group of friends there's three of them in this room like around me for when i am struggling and that ultimately is is probably what gets me through some of the really times you know and it's not necessarily that i will open up and tell you all everything but it's just sometimes having that little like you said earlier a little rub on the back a little little cuddle but when it comes from a friend to someone you don't necessarily see that much it means 10 times the amount and that that helps does help well thank you for sharing all of your stuff which i imagine most people will have never ever ever heard about before thank you for letting me talk about it Time for a game that we call overrated or underrated. I'm going to read out a list of things, and you're going to tell me if you think they're overrated or underrated. First up, we have off-bike warm-ups or stretching before and after cycling, suggested by Sab. Overrated. 
I think they're overrated as well. I never warm up. I'm so bad for it. I think with cycling, you can kind of get away with it. I, well, I guess the warm up caveat would be if I knew I was going straight into a hard race, i.e., a crit or, yep. a, or a 10 mile TT. Yep. You know, exactly. a short TT, I'm doing a warm up for. Or a hill climb. You, yes, because you've got to be sharp straight from the off. But, like, you know, I'm not stretching before I go for a bike ride, I'm not stretching afterwards. I actually stretch on the bike. That's a weird thing to say, but like I'll stretch out my legs and stuff when I'm riding. Well, I agree. Yeah, me sitting on a bike is basically stretching my body out <laughs> these days. <laughs> However, you're becoming a supple leopard, aren't you, Jimmy? I am a supple leopard, yeah. You're, what? You're a leopard? A supple one. He's doing a stretching course. Would uh, that be the right thing? It's called mobility. A mobility. It's, it's a lifestyle change. <laughs> by a guy who wrote a book called How to Become a Supple Leopard. Kelly Starrett is one of the most world-renowned leopardists <laughs> or, or he probably refers himself as a mobility expert he knows all about jaguars tigers leopards lions just leopards just leopards yep. wow. so over it oh well we already said didn't we we yeah. all think it's overrated yeah yep. uh next up carbon everything so this is also suggested by hector who says carbon is great but you don't need everything to be made of it in fact i would argue that you don't want certain things made of carbon such as chain rings. Um, there's also things that aren't much lighter than their metal or plastic counterparts, but much more expensive. Um, I don't think I could ever say that carbon is overrated, but I do very much agree with the point that he's making. Mm-hmm. Um, like We've done a video before, uh, or Francis did a video with a carbon expert, which was looking at products that just don't make sense out of being made of carbon. Like, for example... Chain rings, that's one of the one of the products, because it's a you know a high wear product. Um I'd ag- I would agree with you that things like a chain ring, it shouldn't be made out of carbon, but things like personally, handlebars should be carbon because of the vibration management. You don't um, get the same car- uh, vibration management in a set of alloy bars as you generally will on a carbon set of handlebars. And this is a very personal thing because I have Two broken wrists. I sort of agree with you, and I, I want, I want, I do agree with you, but I want to disagree with you <laughs> because carbon handlebars are always outrageously expensive. Yes, they are. If you pay for the brand, they are. There aren't cheap carbon bars. Prime bars, prime carbon bars. How much do they cost? Forty quid. Please, please tell me if I'm correct, Emily. Is Prime a wiggle brand? Prime is yeah, Prime is Wiggles brand, but I I think their carbon bars are relatively reasonable price. They're probably not forty quid; they're probably hundred quid still. God. So Francis is speaking from the depths of the studio <laughs> that has done the search for us, and he's currently shouting one hundred and fifty pound. What's the cheapest ones? You can get some for ninety five pound on Chain Reaction, but probably for not too much longer. Right, so hundred quid for bars. That's, th- I can that's get, still I, a lot of money. I can get bars for twenty quid. Yeah, that I can is probably still a lot get bars for five quid. Yeah, I, th- I think there's other things that you can do, like for example, tire pressures. Yep, that aren't exactly the same because what you are saying about the vibration reduction at your hands, there is that is a thing, but you can make your ride more comfortable with other things. Completely agree. So I do agree, but I had to make sure I disagreed with you. Oh, I do like your point, but I had to disagree. You're, you're with neutral. Um, Jimmy neutral. Well, no, I, I don't use carbon bars. I put I have alloy bars and everything. But the other point here is met, some metal parts are as light as carbon counterparts. The best example for me is stems. Exactly. You can actually get aluminium stems that are lighter than a lot of carbon stems as yeah. well. Well, I used to have a Dada, I can't even remember what model it was, and it was, it was a 90 mil stem that was about 90 grams. 
Um, and Good it, bang wasn't, for your buck. it wasn't cheap, but the it was probably half the price of what the carbon equivalent would. Yeah. And I remember looking it up and the carbon one was like 20 grams heavier. In the grand scheme of things, 20 grams doesn't make any kind of difference. But my point is, just because it's carbon doesn't mean that it's actually the best or lightest product. In what you're saying, overrated or underrated? Carbon everything. Overrated. Carbon everything is overrated. I would agree with that. Uh, the final one on our list, also from Hector, is oversized derailleur cages and jockey wheels. Can I start? Yeah, please. Massively overrated, especially for the cost of them. They look great, but they're really overrated because they're so expensive. And they don't all look great. I'm going to care about say, that. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think they do look great. It's just different, isn't it? I think the only ones that actually look kind of cool are the ceramic speed ones. I don't like pretty much any other competitor brand. So Kogel have made them um, like black. What is it called? Absolute black. Their one. Um, we've, we've had Nick ranting about um, ceramic bearings on the previous podcast. When you see, so I'm going to take later on, Nick, we're going to be with Nick. I'll let him rant at me. I'm going to put you face to face with each other and I'm just going to say bearings and run away. And it's like <laughs> dropping a grenade. And then 14 hours later, you will know everything about bearings. I'm not saying they're necessarily better or worse. I'm just saying that they they look cool. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. The ceramic speed ones look cool. I mean, the argument on a takeaway the p- performance aspect of bearings, the arg- the other argument of an oversized system is that you're causing a less aggressive. We've been bend. through all this before. You don't need to tell me. I've I've been through this in great detail with Nick. Okay. They are overrated. Okay. We'll you could we'll say overrated on everything apart from. Ceramic speed one. Still overrated. Especially overrated because of the price. Underrated if you can get it for under £100. Which you can't. Exactly. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Keep sending your suggestions to wildonespodcast at cademedia.co.uk and we might read yours out in the next show. We're going to skip over Fluff of the Week seamlessly, aren't we? Because our guest is Chris Hall, we knew we were going to be talking about 400 years. So we're going to skip fluff of the week because we also didn't have anything that I particularly cared to talk about. We're perfect. We are perfect. Yeah. Uh, fluff up of the week is having Chris Hall on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. only from an editing perspective. <laughs> or more uh, subbing down four hours into one hour. Not my fluff up of the week, though. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Emily. Uh, so let's head over to your emails because it's time for listeners takeover. We need a jingle for that, don't we? Lots of people wrote in pointing out that aluminium is actually not the same and that there are different grades. So Cam emailed us and he said that there are actually two different main grades of aluminium used for bike frames, 6,000 and 7,000. 7,000 is stronger and harder, so it's ultimately lighter and stiffer for making bikes. Um, He agrees that the way the tubing is designed and used, including butting, also makes a difference. There are some brands making highly developed high-end aluminium bikes like Mason, Standard, Condor, and Spoons Customs. Uh, The notion that aluminium bikes are harsher and you should choose carbon is outdated. My aluminium Mason definition has a far smoother ride quality than my old carbon Canyon Ultimate. Cheers, Cam. Thank you, Cam, for a bit of extra information. Cheers. Also, we had other emails in from people correcting what we've talked about before. We had a message from Thomas, who is a climate scientist. And he said, commuting to work on my bike, I heard you talking about electric cars in a previous episode. The thing is, even if the grid is 100% coal powered, which it's not, studies show that electric cars still need about 31% less energy to power them. That's because power plants are more efficient at converting fossil fuels to electricity than combustion car engines are at converting fuel. Thank you, Thomas. 
that feels like a lot of science for mm. this podcast, but it's interesting <laughs> to know. But he is a scientist. He is a scientist. So it's fine. Yes. I, I, I guess there will be people which... There's, it's it's a complex answer, but it's a good piece of information to know. Yep. Okay, last one is from Dan. Hi, guys. Love the channel. It's pushed me to buy a bike for the first time since I was 15. I'm now 23. Anyway, I bought a Boardman ADV from Halfords just over a week ago and sadly got a flat tyre for the first time this morning. As the ad on Halfords website said the bike was tubeless ready, I tried to find the puncture and when I couldn't, I started pumping away assuming the sealant had filled it, but to no avail. Thankfully, I was only five minutes from home, so I walked the bike home, took the tyre off and headed to a local bike shop who found that the wheel is tubeless, the tyre is tubeless, but it has an inner tube in it and doesn't have the correct rim, rim tip for tubeless. Thankfully, the guys in the bike shop were very kind and didn't charge for fitting a new tube and pumping it up, but surely this is some dodgy advertising on Halford's end. I think this is actually really interesting because it shows how uh, certain pieces of information have become like normal to us. Like, for example, we've been doing all of this stuff long enough, and I'm sure there'll be people that listen to this as well, that when it says tubeless ready, we know that that means it just can be used tubeless, but a shop is nearly never going to sell it with sealant because it's messy and they don't like doing it. Yeah. Um, so this is a really good message that actually I, reminds me that just because it's terminology that I'm used to doesn't necessarily mean that it's terminology that everyone understands. Uh, because it is, it is, that's massively misleading, you know? Yeah, so correct. tubeless ready, so you go, oh, excellent. So tubeless ready doesn't mean that it's set up tubeless. It will usually be set up with an inner tube in it, but it means you can convert it to tubeless, which means that you would have to put rim tape in it and get sealant, etc. Yes, and uh, isn't cheap. And then you, the, bit, the other bit, which I think people often don't know with tubeless, is the sealant dries out yes. and you have to replenish it regularly, typically every few months, depending on how much... And that's why they never set them up tubeless. Yes, yeah. Uh, but also, what a legendary shop for yeah. Yeah. Not, not charging him for a tube. That's incredible. You should get in touch so you can give that bike shop a shout out. Well, thank you for your message, Dan. I'm sorry that you had to walk home, but hopefully it won't happen again. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep sending in your emails to wildonespodcast at cavemedia.co.uk. If you're listening to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else, please leave us a five-star review if you haven't already. It really helps us grow. I like growing. Um, and if you're watching, leave us a like and remember to subscribe so you don't miss on the next episode. Thank you, Chris. You've been a lovely host and it's always wonderful to see you. Wait, I'm the host. <laughs> Are you the guest? Oh, yeah. I'm, Are you the oh, guest? My brain is not I've working I've been a great today. host today. <laughs> Thank you, Emily, for filling in for the bits that I kept messing up. Um, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.